Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. So while you have your Bibles out, please just turn with me a couple pages back to Romans chapter 8. I want to I want us to look at briefly verses uh, 28 through 29 of Romans 8. And Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. One of my favorite authors and preachers, the late John Stott, once wrote that on these verses, believers of every age have have every age and every place have stayed their minds. They have been, these verses have been likened to a pillow on which to rest our weary heads. I know this has been certainly true for me. These words have sustained my mind and my heart through many difficult trials over the years because they express the reason why we can have such fervent and firm hope and that is the fact that God is sovereign and that He rules absolutely and that God in His righteousness can and does work all things out for our good. And when it says all things, it means all things. It means the bad things and the good things. It means the best things and even the worst of things. God in His sovereign power right now works all things together for the ultimate good of every single believer. What a glorious hope. What a, what a hope-inspiring text. In fact, if, if what you needed when you walked in the door today was a little hope and a little comfort and encouragement, then there it is. God in His sovereignty knows and predestines His children to life and works then all things out for their good. Can I get an amen to that? Yeah. Now, I mentioned this text this morning because not only is this hope-inspiring, but also because... There are two important facts, two important truths found in these verses that will actually help us as we continue our walk through Romans chapter 11. There are two truths that will help us to really understand what Paul is driving at. By the way, I want to welcome you back to our, our series on Romans, subtitled The Power of the Gospel. As you know, we've taken a short break um, beginning in, the, in chapter 11 in order to do a series that we, that, that, that's that's called um, uh, The Lion and the Lamb, a, a, a series on, on Christ himself. And when, we, right, and when we finished VBS, we also took a little time to wrap that up with the uh, last Sunday, of the, um, last Sunday with Parent Sunday. But now we come back to Romans part 59. Um, part 59 of this is a series as we continue to work through chapter 11. Now, the reason we have taken our time and been so deliberate to work our way through this book to this point 
um, is because Romans is the very best exposition of the gospel in the entire Bible. The gospel is central to our faith, and Romans is the clearest explanation of the gospel in all of scriptures. Romans is a masterpiece of theology, and it, and it helps to shape our understanding of, of what the gospel is and how it works. I mean, the truth is, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were written to, to help us to see what happened in history with respect to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. The gospels, as we know, are eyewitness accounts or, or the, the, the record of an eyewitness account of what happened in first century history. And they give us credible proof to what God has done for us in history through Jesus Christ. They record for us what, what Jesus did in his life, his ministry, and they record for us all the miracles that he, that he did. And they help us to understand that Jesus is none other than God come in the flesh. And it helps us to understand that our hope fully and totally and completely rests upon him. But Paul's letter to the Romans is a brilliant, systematic exposition of the gospel that deliberately unpacks the critical details of the gospel that we need to see, process, and understand. We know here and now what we know about the gospel because of this letter. And Paul begins his exposition with the declaration that the gospel is the power of God, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, both Jew and Gentile. And then he explains that what the gospel is, that it's the, it's the bad news of man's condition and it's the good news of what God has done for us through Christ in spite of our condition. He summarizes that actually in chapter 3 where he says, for there is no distinction for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, which is the bad news, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Then Paul explains the blessings the gospel gives to those who believe, which includes peace with God, access to his grace, and the love of God poured into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul explains how the gospel works. Just as, as we died in Adam, because Adam was our, was our covenant head, we find grace in Christ because of his life, because he is our new covenant head. And then after that, Paul explains the freedom that Christians have uh, in Christ. And then chapter 8, we spent a long time talking about the certainty of the hope that we have in Christ. Right? The pinnacle of our hope was found in Romans chapter 8, which is the truth that all of those who trust in Christ are completely and totally safe in the hands of God. And, and the truth is Paul could have just simply stopped there with his explanation of the gospel. He could have just stopped in that moment and then moved on to chapter 12 where he begins to talk about how we are to live in light of the truth of the gospel, but he doesn't. By the way, how many of you are like really cold right now? Okay, a few of you. Fernando, would you? Thank you so much. I appreciate you. I will sweat for you. <laughs> but the truth is, Paul could have stopped at Romans chapter 8 but he moved, and moved on to chapter 12, but he doesn't. Instead, Paul makes a point to spend three more chapters addressing a huge objection that threatened to undermine the gospel and actually undermine the entire Christian faith, an objection that we can't ignore. In essence, the objection is this. If the gospel is true and, and we are saved by grace through faith in Christ alone apart from our works, and obedience to the law, then why do so many Jews reject the gospel? 
I mean, Paul said that the gospel came first to the Jews, right? And that Jesus himself was a Jew. And, and the Jewish scriptures, the Old Testament, Paul says, bear witness to the truth of the gospel. If the gospel is true, then why do so many Jewish people who were, were set apart by God, who were physically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, right, the very people that were given the scriptures and the Mosaic covenant, why do they reject the gospel outright if the gospel is true. This objection actually was so big and so important that Paul spends a lot of time to address it. In chapter 9, he begins addressing the question, if the gospel is true, doesn't that mean the word of God has failed? Because God promised to save his people, and the Jews saw themselves as God's people simply because they were Jews. So if the gospel is true, then why, then, then if God... If the gospel is true, then God's promise to save them has failed because so many of them have rejected the gospel. But Paul has made it clear that, the, that their foundational assumption about their identity was wrong. Being one of God's people was not about nationality. Being one of God's people is not genetics. Being one of God's people is not about family relationships. Rather, it's about God's election and faith in Christ not national identity. God's people are His elect, those He predestined throughout history, not someone genetically related to Abraham and not someone born Jewish. And to that point, some have said, that, well, that makes God unfair because God then, He just chooses who He wants to, to redeem. But Paul makes it clear that God, the creator of all things, has the right to do what He wants to do with His, His creation. And He has the right to have compassion on whom He chooses to have compassion. As God Himself said, that I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion, and I will harden whom I will harden. Not to mention mankind is in no moral position to question what God Himself does. But then comes the question, you mean to tell me the Gentiles, those people who were not pursuing obedience to the law, who weren't even looking for a relationship with God, somehow have found righteousness, have been saved. While many Jews who knew the law, loved the law, did everything they could to obey the law, you mean to say that they have not found righteousness and have not been saved? And Paul said, absolutely. Because the Gentiles received the righteousness from God based on faith, while the Jews had pursued a righteousness based on works of the law or a self-righteousness, a self-righteousness of their own efforts. The truth is these people, the Jews, felt entitled to God's promises because of their nationality and their ability to keep the law. And because of that, they refused to come to Christ by faith. But then in chapter 10, Paul explains that salvation is a matter of faith apart from works of the law. And the simple promise of the gospel is everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. It's a glorious truth we spent a lot of time talking about, that all who call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The simple promise is that everyone who calls on Christ, regardless of their nationality, regardless of what family they're born into, Jew or Gentile alike, if they will call upon Jesus, they will be saved. And Paul explains that those who call on him are the ones who hear the gospel and then respond to the gospel in faith. Not by works, but by faith. Right? They hear the message and they believe it. It's that simple. And Paul makes it clear that the Jews who reject Christ, they have heard the gospel. They just refuse to believe it. And the reason why they refuse to believe it is because their hearts were hard. 
That's why Paul says, about, you know, he quotes Isaiah, who says of Israel, All day long I have held out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. In other words, the Jews had heard the gospel and the call of the gospel was open to them, but they refused and rejected the gospel, right? The same way they had rejected God so many times before in his prophets in the Old Testament. And so the answer to the objection, if the gospel is true, then why do so many Jews reject it? It's simply this. It's because they have hard and impenitent hearts. As Paul had mentioned in Romans chapter 2, they stubbornly reject the hope that God freely offered them through Christ because they have hearts of stone. In fact, their hearts were so hard that they were the ones who put Christ to death. They were the ones who were persecuting the early church at the time. Many people forget this in our time and culture. We always point and remember the Roman persecution, and that did happen, but it happened later. It was the Jews who originally were rounding up Christians and arresting them and killing them. In fact, Paul admits that he was one of them. The Jews, these peoples, the Jewish people's hearts were hardened to the gospel. They rejected it because of the hardness of their hearts. And they stubbornly held on to the idea that, that they could become righteous by their own efforts to keep the law. They believed that they had a right, a birthright to salvation because of who they were genetically and their ability to keep their traditions. Now with that, and with the hardness of their hearts... It may have seemed at that time as if God had given up on the Jews. It may have seemed that evangelizing them and sharing the gospel with them was a hopeless endeavor because their hearts were so hard against God's grace. But beginning in chapter 11, Paul explains it's not hopeless at all because there was still a remnant among the Jews that were part of God's elect, part of His family. That within the Jewish nation, there were, and by the way, still today, are those who will respond to the hope of the gospel. That all is not lost. And even though a majority of those who were Jewish rejected the gospel, not all of them did. In fact, Paul makes a point to say that he was one of them that was, hard and, that was hard-hearted against the good news of the gospel. But God, in His grace, changed him and he came to faith. Many Jews believed, and many more in the future will believe as well. But with that, there's still, for some people, when they look at God's promise, it seems to be a bit of incongruity in what God was doing and what God had seemed to promise to ethnic or national Israel. It seemed like there was a disconnection or a discontinuity on God's part. It seemed like to some that God had promised something to His people that He hadn't made good on which then leads to the question that Paul addresses in today's text. Now, if you remember, Paul in this letter, as he writes, he uses literary devices to try to explain himself. And one of those devices is called a diatribe. It's, it's a back-and-forth conversation. I'm sure that some of you have had some of those with yourselves, right? All right? This is where Paul has a conversation with an imaginary person, specifically an imaginary Jewish person, and this imaginary Jewish person is raising objections and difficult questions to which then Paul answers them and, and helps to explain the truth. And, and we see that throughout Romans, especially in chapters 9-11, through 11, but that's what we see here in this text. Paul asks the question on behalf of somebody else who's struggling to accept the gospel, and then he answers it. And so we read... In verse 11, so I ask, 
did they stumble in order that they might fall? Now, specifically, this word they that Paul's using here is referring specifically to ethnic Israel, right? The, the people who were born Jewish, who rejected the gospel. That's the they that he's talking about. Those who think of themselves as God's chosen people. But Paul has already made it clear that God's chosen people, his family, are those who are the elect. And this family is made up of both Jews and Gentiles who've come to faith in Christ. But then what does this mean for the rest of ethnic Israel? What about the nation that was set apart by God to be the light of the world? They were such a focus of what God was doing in the Old Covenant. What about the genetic family from which the Messiah has come? What about them? Even Paul had said that, that they had a privileged status, that through them come the Scriptures, that through them came the Christ. What about them? Is God done with them? Have they outlived their usefulness? Have they stumbled and completely fallen to the point that God no longer has a purpose for them? Well, Paul answers this question the same way that he's answered many of the questions before with the expression of, by no means. And as we've said before, this expression is very emphatic. It means, right, perish the thought or may it never be. By no means has ethnic Israel stumbled so far as to be irrelevant to God's plan of redemption. God is not through with them. As Paul, and Paul explains why. He says, rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world and their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? You see, what Paul is saying is God is using the failure of ethnic Israel and the rejection of the gospel to bring salvation to the rest of the world. But this failure doesn't result in a total loss for them. Instead, God's grace being given to the rest of the world will be the catalyst that draws ethnic Israel back to him, resulting in more Jews being saved in the future, resulting in greater blessing for the world. That's what he's saying. In fact, he repeats this idea, right, just in the next section, but he speaks to the Gentiles. He says, now I'm speaking to you Gentiles, insomuch as I'm an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order to somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous, and notice this, and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means reconciliation for, of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough is offered as first fruits is holy, so the whole lump, and if the root is holy, so are the branches. What Paul is saying is this right here is how God is bringing redemption to the entire world. This is how God is bringing salvation to His elect throughout history. He is using the failure of the Jews to bring faith to the Gentiles, which is good for the Jews because many Jews seeing the grace given to the Gentiles will want that grace and then come to faith in Christ as a result. And as wild as that sounds, as counterintuitive as that sounds to us, this is part of the reason why at the end of Romans 11, Paul will write, Oh, the depths of the riches and wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and inscrutable His ways. 
God accomplishes His will in the most amazing, unexpected ways. God takes the failure of the Jews and turns it into victory for the entire world. That's why Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29 are so important here. Because there are two truths in these verses that help us to really fully grasp what Paul is driving at here in Romans 11. Because I'm going to tell you right now, Romans 11 has been misunderstood, misquoted, and misinterpreted for decades, especially here in, in the Western world, but especially in America. Because there's a dominant theological movement that has twisted this text and others out of context to perpetuate the idea that national or ethnic Israel has been and always will be God's singular people. And that the Gentiles or the church is somehow an afterthought in God's plan of redemption. That Gentiles in the church are like second-class citizens in the kingdom of heaven because Israel is God's true people. Some will misquote Paul even to say that all Israelites and all Jews will ultimately be saved simply because they're Jews. It's the idea that Israel was plan A and God had his heart and his mind fixed on them and them alone, but then Israel rejected God and his Messiah, so God then had to change his plan and resort to plan B which then was the church. Right? The church, which is made up of believers throughout all of history, isn't really God's chosen people, according to them. In fact, there are people today, I've heard it you know, on many videos, who call, people who call themselves Christians, they, they all say the words, Jesus didn't come to save us. He didn't come to save Gentiles. He came to save Jews. He came for them, and He offered them salvation and only offered us salvation once the Jews rejected us, that we are plan B and the Jews were plan A. Right? But then one day God's going to come back to plan A. Right? And a lot of people believe that. But the problem is, is God doesn't have and never has had two separate plans of redemption. He doesn't have or never has had two separate peoples. God has always had one plan and one people that He redeems according to His plan that He conceived in eternity past. And Romans 8, 28 and 29 are key to understanding that. In fact, let me just read this again. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who were called according to His purpose, for those whom He foreknew He predestined to be conformed in the image of His Son in order that He might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. There are two truths in this text that help us to understand what Paul is saying in Romans 11. And the first is the identity of God's people. The identity of God's people are those who love God. Those are God's people. Those who love God. These people who love God are the central focus of the entire exposition of the gospel. Those who love God are, pe are the people who are the focus of God's redemptive activity. Those who love God. They are the ones that make up God's family. Now, who is it that loves God? Is it a particular race? Is it a particular nationality? Are they genetically related? Are they, are they Jews? Are they Americans? Are they Gentiles? No. Those who love God, as Paul says, are those who were called by God according to His purpose. 
Those are the ones who love God. Notice how Paul writes this. For those who love God, all things work together for good for those, those same those, right, who were called according to his purpose. This was written in such a way in the Greek that these two expressions, those who love God and those who are called by God, they describe the same exact group of people. You see, you can't separate these two. It doesn't just say for those who love God, right? It also says for those who are called by God. God's people meet both of these qualifications. They love Him and have been called by Him. Those are God's people. And by the way, those are the ones that are plan A. Those are the ones He came to save. And, and if it wasn't clear enough for us to see that, then Paul then takes the time to explain it and spell it out to, to us. He says, for those... The same those, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined, predetermined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that they that he might be the firstborn amongst many brothers, and those, again, the same those whom he predestined, he also he also notice the word called, right? And and those who he called, he also justified by faith in Christ. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. God's people are not some ethnic group. God's people is not some national identity. God's people are not a denomination. God's people are those who love him and have been called by him according to his plan of redemption. And he called them and predestined them in eternity past. And God ordained them to salvation Right, when he conceived his plan of redemption, the plan that he works out and unfolds even now in human history. Another way to refer to these people is his elect. We see that throughout Romans and throughout the Scriptures. God's people are his elect, which then leads us to the second truth. The second truth is this, that God uses everything, good and bad, even human failure to bring us to to bring about His plan and purpose of redemption. God uses everything, good and bad, to bring about His plan of redemption. Again, Paul wrote, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. What good? The ultimate good. The redemption of God's people, those who love God, who have been called by God. In fact, in this verse, it's actually more clearly stated I don't always shift translations, but sometimes, sometimes, as much as I don't like it, the New Living Translation says it really clear, right? And it does so here. And it says this way, it says, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to His purpose for them. The truth is that God has a plan of redemption that He's ordained for His people, His elect. And among the elect are both Jews and Gentiles. And they are one people. Paul says in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There's no, nor, there is no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. God has always had and will continue to have one people. And God works in humanity and human history to work all things out. All circumstances, 
all success, all failures, all triumphs, all trials, all things to bring about the ultimate good for his people. Now, with these two things, right, these two truths firmly fixed, that, that God has an elect people, and these people that God works for their ultimate good, let's again look at Paul's question with those things fixed in our mind. So I ask, did they, these Jews who rejected Christ, stumble in order they may not fall? By no means. Rather, through, look at that word, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles, so as, there's another purpose statement, so as to make Israel jealous. Now with that, again, hear the words of Romans 8.28. All things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to His purpose. You see, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 11 is that God has ordained to use the failure of ethnic Israel in order to fulfill his plan to bring the Gentiles into, his, into the family of God, a family made up of both Jews and Gentiles. But even more, God in his wisdom and in his sovereignty doesn't let ethnic Israel completely fall away. Instead, he uses the faith that has been engendered in the Gentiles because of the failure of Israel. He uses that faith as a catalyst to inspire a gospel hope in the Jews so that they will experience a revival and come to faith in Christ, which then leads to more blessing for the rest of the world. God uses Israel's failure in order to save Gentiles, which in turn leads to the salvation of more Jews. Only God can think of stuff like this, right? I mean, for us, we're like, that's, that's a mess. But God uses Israel's failure in order to save Gentiles, which in turn leads to the salvation of more Jews, which ultimately benefits the entire world. You see how that works? What you need to understand, what I need to understand, what we need to embrace is God has always, it's always been God's plan to use the failure of the Jews and their rejection of Christ and his gospel to bring his redemption to the world, including much of ethnic Israel. God works out all things for the good of those who love Him and have been called according to His purpose, redemption. Can you see the connection there? Now, this is the lesson for us here and now with this truth. What seems like failure to us, what seems like failure from our human perspective, God purposes and uses to bring about ultimate victory. If you needed hope, there it is. What seems like failure to us, God purposes and ordains and uses to bring about ultimate victory. You see, it's not about God having two different people and two different plans of redemption. God's plan A didn't fail, so he had to go to plan B. God has always had one people, one plan, and one kingdom. And He has been working through history to unfold His plan of redemption that He conceived in eternity past to bring His people into His kingdom. And the thing that we need to see and take heart is God even works with the worst kinds of failures, the worst kind of fa the failure that mankind is capable of. He works through that failure in order to accomplish His own glorious purpose. God's sovereignty works even through the worst circumstances and failures that we experience. And He does so in order to demonstrate His glory and bring His people to redemption. Which, by the way, is the pattern of the entire Bible. God using the failures of mankind to bring victory. 
I think the biggest example of that, just look at the cross. The entire nation of Israel are on their tiptoes in anticipation, looking for the Messiah, and they reject him when he comes. Jesus' own disciples who believe in him and follow him everywhere, right, will turn their backs on him at the very last moment. One of Jesus' closest friends betrays him into the hands of his enemies. And one even closer friend will deny that he even knows him. And then he's killed, brutally murdered, tortured to death. And everyone in the world, everyone in the world, Jew and Gentile alike, believed that it was all over. It was done. The movement had stopped. The dream was dead. Why? Because Jesus was dead. This is the worst failure in all of human history. This is the greatest tragedy that's ever happened to humanity. The sinless, spotless Son of God, betrayed, abandoned, and murdered by His own people. This is the darkest moment in all of antiquity. This is the worst event to ever befall the likes of men. But God works all things out, even the worst things for the good of those who love Him and are called by Him. Right? And three days later, the tomb was empty. Christ was risen from the dead, proving that all of God's promises can be trusted, even when all seems lost and all seems hopeless. What seems like failure to us God purposes and ordains and uses to bring about ultimate victory, ultimate good, including the cross, including Judas's betrayal, including Peter's denial, including the failure of the Jews to come to faith in Christ. And what we need to take away from this is not only will there be a revival among ethnic Israel at some point. We as Christians who are on mission for Christ need to take the long view of all of our circumstances and all of the circumstances of those around us. Understanding that even in the most impossible situation to us is nothing more than an instrument for God to use to bring about ultimate good and His glory. This is why we say, our job is to sow the seed and love the people, pray for God to change their hearts, and what? Never give up. We never give up hope for anyone to come to faith in Christ because God can and does bring even the most unlikely to faith. You don't believe me? Look at this dude right here. He changes the hardest of hearts. He draws them to himself and he grants them faith and repentance. Again, listen to Paul's words. So I ask that they stumble in order that they might fall by no means, rather through their trespass. Salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now if their trespass means riches for the world and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? There is no one, and I mean no one, beyond the reach of God's mercy. I hope that you 
truly believe that. The family members who seem to to be utterly hardened to the gospel, that, that cousin of yours who thinks that you're a religious bigot because you won't join with them in their celebration of sin, that sister that looks down on you for your archaic religious beliefs, that parent who just won't even, won't even hear it. All of those people in your life that seem like they will never repent and believe Christ, right? it might seem impossible for us here and now, but let us remember God is, is in the business of impossible. God is in the business of bringing hope to those who have no hope. God is in the business of bringing the dead back to life. No one, I mean, no one is beyond the reach of God's mercy. And there is no situation in your life, and there is no situation that, that in your life that, can, that God can't bring about ultimate good for us and for those that He means to redeem. Not sickness, not depression, not despair, not cancer, not poverty, not war, or insurrection, or coups. We just saw another one this week in Russia. Not the loss of a child, not the loss of the function of all your limbs. There is no situation in our lives There are no circumstances that are beyond God redeeming and using to achieve His plan for redeeming us and other people. When I came to faith in Christ, I was very excited to share my faith. And I shared my faith with my mom. And my mom did not want to hear it. She did not want to hear it from me. She had grew up in a legalistic church when she was a kid. And she, I mean, when you look up church hurt in the dictionary, then you can see her picture in there, right? She didn't want to hear anything about it. But then years later, my mom was diagnosed with a glioblastoma, which is an aggressive form of brain cancer. And me and Kim and our family prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed that God would heal my mom. And understand, like, I have prayed for people that, that they've been healed. We, you know, we've seen it happen, Right? But we prayed for her, and we prayed a lot, but she just didn't get better. She went to surgery. She had radiation. She had chemotherapy. She did all the things that she was supposed to do, but she didn't get better. I watched and saw how the treatments ravaged her body. And then I saw how the cancer began to grow back and watched her slowly wither away into a shell of her former self. And it was in the darkest moments of my entire life, the darkness, darkest moments of my mom's life, that, that in the darkness, God was shining a light of hope into my mom's heart. And he used that terrible situation to reach her for the gospel and it was during that time that she and my mom came to faith. And she asked for us to pray with her and for her. And, and I'll never forget the day that she died. It was just hours before 
Kim asked her, because she knew she was dying. She knew that where she was going. And Kim asked her, said, are you afraid? And she said, no. And she wasn't afraid because she knew who it was that had her. And she knew that he was firmly in control and that she could trust him. God used that unimaginable situation to bring about the very best good that my mom could ever experience. There is no situation in our lives, there's no circumstances that are beyond God redeeming and using to achieve His plan of redemption for us and others. And that is why we can praise God and trust in Him even in the darkness. That's why we can rejoice in all of our trials. Not because our trials are good, they're horrible. That's why we can worship God as oceans of tears fall from our eyes. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, we're treated as imposters yet are true, as known and yet well known, as dying, and behold, we live as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We can worship God for all things, in all circumstances, because God has promised that He works all things out for the good of His people. And I want you to understand that I believe firmly that, that much of this good that has been promised is still yet to be seen. Because throughout the last 2,000 years, there have been Jews that have come to faith in Christ. But I believe along with the likes of R.C. Sproul and many other people, a time is coming when many ethnic Jews will come to saving faith in Christ as God changes their hearts and the world will experience a revival like the, the likes of which we've never seen before. I believe a time is coming when many Jews will hear the gospel and believe and as a result more of the world will come to faith as Paul describes here. Because there are two promises God has made that we have heard that we ought to be holding on to and hoping in. And the first one is, the gospel is the power of God for salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew and the Greek. The gospel, the gospel is the very power of the creator of the universe to bring salvation to the world. And the second promise is one that Jesus made that He said that He builds His church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Now, I once heard a famous preacher who I, I have benefited from, I know and love and respect, but to my chagrin, he said, we lose down here. But because of all the promises that God has made, I just can't agree with Him. I don't believe it. I believe the gospel and the church will be victorious even when all seems lost from a human perspective. I believe that the greatest revival in human history is coming and we will see many, many Jews who were once lost, who rejected Christ, have their hearts changed, and they will gladly embrace Him as Lord. And the result will be, will be more people will come to faith in Christ. 
I believe the promise that, that God's people are more numerous than the stars of heaven. Because God in His wisdom and His sovereignty works all things out for the good of His people, His elect, who, he, who love Him and who have been called by Him. A people of every tribe, nation, and tongue is promised in the Scriptures. A people that He predestined before the foundation of the world. God works all things out for their good, even the worst of things. And every day, He gave us a promise and a symbol to look to as proof of that, the cross. So then what do we, what do, we do with this glorious truth of God's monumental grace? Well, first is if you're not in Christ, repent and believe the gospel. Today's the day of salvation. Believe on Christ and be saved. The promise is the same to everyone. It doesn't matter who you are, where you've been, what you've done. The promise is always the same. If you'll call upon the name of the Lord, you'll be saved. Believe in Christ and be saved. And then for, the, for those who are saved... It is so easy for us to fall into this tradition of, of legalism and I need to do this to make God happy and I need to do that to make God love me. And we need to rest in the salvation that God has already given us. Amen. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we continue to be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. It doesn't change. And whatever good that you do for God is for His glory, but it, it does not make you better in the kingdom of heaven. And whatever failures that you, that, that you continue to fail in won't disqualify you. Why? Because Christ already paid for that sin too. Rest in the gospel of grace. Now, it doesn't mean that we shouldn't pursue holiness. We ought to because we're His people. But we need primarily to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross. And then finally, we need to take this message to the rest of the world and rescue the lost. God has ordained for us to be the instrument in His hand by which to reach the lost, Jew and Gentile alike. You have been uniquely positioned in your life to be able to connect to people that no one else in, around you can connect to, to be able to share the love and the hope of Christ with them. And guess what? When you then say the words and you see their expression and you see their irritation and they tell you they don't want to hear no more and you think, this is impossible, Lord. Remember that God took the rejection of the Jews to turn it into salvation for Gentiles in order to turn it back into salvation for the Jews. That God works all things out for the good of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose. Even if they don't know it yet. But let us sow the seed Love the people. Pray that God will change their hearts and love you. Let's pray together. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world. 